Morning. I'm mindful of various things as we begin. This is the start of a series, and so um, I'm aware that for the lots of visitors in the room, I'm kind of sorry in one sense that you're just going to get the starter for 10. Um, I'm mindful as well that this isn't a normal series for us. Um, we will spend time in Ephesians 2, but actually we're going to try and give something of a Bible overview, um, thinking about diversity, ethnicity, language, that kind of stuff, as we have six weeks or so doing something slightly different Um, than what we would normally do. So let me pray for us, and then we will um, have a think about some of these things. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for the the freedom with which we can meet together this morning. We are mindful of brothers and sisters around the world for whom that is not true. Perhaps they're meeting in fear of their lives. Perhaps they don't have Bibles in their hands. And so we thank you for the privilege that we have. We pray, as Tom was saying, that we might be increasingly a thankful people who remember to look to you, to to consider what we do have, perhaps rather than what we don't have. Give us content hearts, hearts that look to you and are thankful to you. And speak to us, please, this morning. Lord, give me the words to say. Give us alert minds and hearts as we go through a bit of a paper chase as we head through um, the Bible. And Father, please help this not simply to be nice ideas or things to think about, but would you speak to us? Would you encourage us? Would you challenge us? For your glory, for our good. Amen. When the early church formed and it became clear that Jesus, the Messiah, the King, was not just for Jewish people, big questions began to be asked about how you do church. How do you be a church? What does a local church actually look like? How does it function when you've got historic enemies now in the room together as friends? You had a Jewish, Judaistic culture. You had a Greek, Hellenistic culture. In the past, they wouldn't have touched each other with a very long barge pole. They were enemies, and now they are in the same room, and they are family. What, what would a mealtime look like? In Bible times, identity, friendship, who you were, who your people were, would clearly be marked by what you ate and who you ate with. And now they were sat around the same table as friends. And so when Paul writes to the Ephesians, as Tom said to us, 2 verse 22, including the Gentile Christians in with the Jewish Christians, when Paul writes, in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit, well, that creates all kinds of practical questions. Things to be wrestled with. Things to be worked through. Just imagine some of the challenges. Imagine some of the implications if that were us. I think in that kind of situation, you've always got two big dangers, two big dead ends that you can get lost down as you wrestle through some of those questions. The first one is a kind of superiority. That is, one group gets to call the shots. One group gets to make the decisions. So I know we're meant to be one, but look, there are more of us, and we've got louder voices, or we were here first, so here is how we will do church. 
The majority voice wins. Here is what a service will look like. Here is when a church service will start. Here are the kind of songs we'll sing. Here is what we will eat. Here is when we will eat. Here is how we will do it. We'll do things our way, like it or lump it. And you essentially end up with a dominant group who does it all. And the other group, they have to fall into line. They have to go somewhere else. So there's S for superiority. Or secondly, the other one is kind of a splintering. That is, rather than stay around and work at it, rather than dealing with these tensions, we head off, we start our own thing. It's easier, isn't it? I wonder if in our culture that's the way we would do things. With the amount of choice we have and where we get what we want and we get to pick and to choose and to consume and find a church that suits us, maybe full of people like us, singing the kind of songs that we like, the sermons that we enjoy, the kind of vibe that we get on with, or the chairs or the building or whatever it is for us, And before you know it, we've splintered into all kinds of lots of little churches, each catering for a particular type of person or nuance or preference or feel. And we splinter. I heard a little while ago in Oxford there were at least 90 broadly evangelical churches within the ring road in Oxford. And some of that is for a really good reason. Some of that is because people are looking to reach different areas different localities, different communities. Some of it, I wonder if it's just about preference. But you see, the thing is, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he didn't say, do you know what, it would be much easier if you just go and be two churches. If you just go and be a Hellenistic church, you just go and be a Jewish church. No, no, Ephesians, you are a single dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And the letter is broadly about the ins and outs of being unified, of sticking with it, of not splintering, of loving each other, of forgiving each other, of putting the other person's needs before our own. Yes, it's hard, but it's worth it, says Paul. And the problem is we live in a world where there are all kinds of little clubs and groups and gatherings and full of people who are pretty similar. But in church, we ought to be different. We ought to represent the area, the communities in which we are based, in which God has put us. Jesus came for all kinds of people. He came for people like you. And you know, people not like you as well. And when we don't care about these things, people look at the church and they say, well, clearly your church is for people like you, and I'm not like you, so Jesus is not for people like me. Is that right? Actually, the exciting thing as well is if you look at church history, it's a slight sort of aside here, but as you look at church history, and what is striking and exciting is when new cultures encounter the gospel, something amazing happens. So the message of Jesus goes into a new place and people work really hard at communicating it. There's translation, there's teaching, you're wrestling with words and ideas and concepts and thoughts and it... And what it turns out, though, is that theology you end up with is richer as a result of that wrestling. Everyone benefits. The the literature will show you that's been true in a number of different areas. As we started, it was true in how we grasp who Jesus is. So the gospel of Jesus, the news that God had taken on flesh in the man Jesus Christ, that he died, that he was raised again, that he's now risen and ascended. It went into a new place like Europe and communicated in ways that can be understood by Europeans. And then suddenly the the questions that the Greek Christians, the new Greek Christians were asking, and the dialogue and engagement that happened afterwards meant that there was a 
a clarity, a clarification about Jesus being the eternally begotten son. He wasn't only the Jewish Messiah, they realized. He was bigger than that. The theology was tightened. Truths were richer. And in large part, crossing that cultural frontier made those things come alive. Now, those truths had always been there. It wasn't that they just kind of made this up. But as the scripture was poured over, as study was done, you end up with a sharper, more beautiful, more nuanced picture of what God is like and who he is. There are all kinds of examples of that. The point is, though, theology flourishes when different systems and worldviews are engaged with and understood. We, we, we grasp more of the beauty and the depth of Christ. Our blind spots are pointed out to us. And why does this matter? Maybe that's your question. What's he going on about? The thing is, look at our world now. Look at the West now. Look at the balance and shape of the global church now as God is doing amazing things in the global South. Look at refugees and asylum seekers bringing their worldviews and experiences and traditions to our doorstep. Look at the variety of people and peoples in East Oxford. And you see, there are all kinds of questions that for us to be faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be asking whether to accommodate and celebrate Christians who are coming to our neighborhood or even to reach those who are coming to our neighborhood who don't currently follow Christ. They might be hard questions. They might make us uncomfortable. They might reveal wrong thinking or blind spots or sin that we have. They might expand our vision of God and our theology. They, they might change how we have to do church. They might change what Sunday morning might have to look like. But we can't ignore them. And in fact, some people have said that this is a key time in history. These decades, these decades are key ones for us to engage with this kind of thing. They are particular questions for people like us at a time like this, when you've got all this movement of people going on in a way that we never have really before, at least not for 2,000 years. And so the plan for the next six weeks or so is to just to begin to sort of grapple with some of those things, have a bit of a think about some answers, for us to, to wrestle with some of the important passages where these things are picked up in Scripture, to tentatively consider what some next steps might mean even for us as a church and so it's a different series from usual because it's the one time in the year where we have something slightly more topical and we will look at a passage or two each time but rather than working through a book or a section of a book we chop up the bible slightly more thematically and i really only allow myself one a year and that is it so sorry if you're visiting and um, this is unusual and as we said we're hoping to give something of an overview this first time um, so we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, and then we'll spend a bit more time in Genesis chapter 11, and then we'll jump to Genesis 12, and then from there to the rest of the Bible um, in three hours. So we'll... <laughs> I'm joking. Um, a brief, broad, bird's-eye view. So come with me to chapter 1 of Genesis. And we are in chapter 1 and verse 26. They will be familiar couple of verses for many of us. And there are all kinds of things that we could say, as there are with all of these passages, but I'm going to look at them through a particular lens for today. 
particular example, particular sort of slant. So um, if you've got a church Bible, we, you're at the bottom of page three. <clears throat> then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, you may well be aware Christians differ on what kind of writing Genesis 1 is. But I'm going to say for now, don't so much focus on how he did it or the length of time it took but rather focus on the why. What is it teaching? What is he trying to say by it? And notice that up to this point in the story, it's all been good. God has made the world and it was good. And then comes this pinnacle. There's a proverbial hush of anticipation. Man and woman are made. Made as two sexes, two genders. Made as the culmination, the icing on the cake. They are part of creation, like what has come before. But they're different. These, these two are made in the image of God. Which actually means all kinds of things as the Bible story goes on. But just two words for today. Being made in God's image for today means relationships. And it means responsibility. So relationships made for one another, made for community. Man and woman, male and female, together in God's image. Reflecting something of the diversity but the unity At the heart of who God is, the heart of our Trinitarian God, three in one. So there's something of relationships there. They're the same, but not the same. Diverse, but unified. So relationships, then responsibility as well. So the responsibility, do you see, of ruling over and caring for God's creation in his place, filling the earth, subduing the earth, the, the inherent dignity of causing the earth to be fruitful and to function. And yet my point is this. There is no comment in the text on ethnicity or language or class or education level or, or skin color or economic level. We're all made in God's image. We are all his. We all image him. All are to reflect that relationships and that responsibility angle. And yet I wonder if a big blind spot for many of us can be our knee-jerk reaction to a verse like this or verses like this is that far too easily we imagine someone like me being made in God's image. As in you, not me, but you. Put yourself in my position, yeah? And we forget that everybody else is made in God's image too. We're all made in God's image. God God did not create in simply functional terms, in black and white, but it was interesting and it was different and it was varied and it was good. And in our diverse and complicated world, a tendency of racism or xenophobia or ethnocentrism that consistently scar human relationships is the denigration, the attack of the other. 
We see them as other, somehow less human than us, whoever they are. And we can sneer at them because they look different or they sound different or they believe different things or even they vote in a different way from us. And they are seen as other, somehow less than human. But from these verses, there is a fundamental foundational unity and an inherent dignity within humanity. Walk around Oxford, walk down the Cowley Road, and you will see all kinds of people there. But they are all made in the image of God. That might mean that we need to stretch our thinking about who God is and what he is like and what it means to be made in his image. Because maybe we have the kind of blind spot that it's just people like me who are made in God's image. It's striking as well that we're not meant to stay put in Genesis 1, are we? We have this responsibility, and so God's plan is that the earth will be filled. They are to go out from the garden, says God. Which means as you reach Genesis 11, come with me to page 12, and you reach this Tower of Babel, you find the people are settled, and so something has gone wrong, hasn't it? Have a look down at the passage. I'll just give you ten seconds or so to have a glance over it. For many of us, it will be a familiar story. And in one sense, maybe we think, what's the issue? What's the problem with building a tower? Seriously. Why does the Lord end up judging them? Well, the answer is largely there in verse 4. Then the people said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Two problems. Problem number one, why are they seeking to make a name for themselves? What's that for? Are they not made in God's image? Are they not meant to be about bringing him glory, bearing his image to the world? Why has it become about them all of a sudden? And they do what mankind always does, this sinful, proud bent that we have of hearts that want to be like God. It's a testimony to their greatness. It's a project for them to glorify self, that the world might know how amazing we are. It's like social media, before social media was a thing. And so there's this tower that reaches to the heavens, and they undertake this, this physical and metaphorical assault upon him. I should say, I'm not against social media, as many of you will know, but the danger can be that it goes into those things. It becomes about our glory. This became about their glory, wanting to cross the bridge between heaven and earth once again, as if they could. Problem number one. Why are they wanting to make a name for themselves? But secondly, why have they stopped scattering? They were meant to disperse. They were meant to go over the face of the whole earth. They were meant to take his image with them wherever they went, filling, ruling, subduing, and yet in direct defiance and disobedience, they, they gather they stop listening to God's word, again. They think they know best, again. And they build this tower in their honor. 
And so verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speak in the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down, confuse their language so they won't understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, I take verse 5 and 6 not as the Lord sort of panicking in some way, but rather an anthropomorphism. This is language given of the text to help us understand something of what God's doing. And as he always does, he has to come down to us. And just as in Genesis 3, as he judged proud, proud humanity who've ignored his word, his judgment here, as it did there, comes with grace as well. Yes, there are languages confused. Yes, this project is abandoned. There is no tower, but, but they are scattered around the world. They are sent out, doing what they were meant to do in the first place. And so God's blessing will go with them as well. Because as chapter 11 cha- transitions to chapter 12, then you see God speaking to a man called Abraham. 12 verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, God chooses Abraham for the nations. The saviour, the one to bless all, will come from Abraham's descendants. All peoples on earth will be blessed through him. Again, it's God coming down and blessing, God making someone great, God making a name for someone, God making promises rather than mankind seeking to do it for ourselves in a way that God has never intended or ordained. And from Abraham, he becomes Abraham, the pages of scripture turn, and the blessing to the nations, the blessings of all peoples, finally seen in Christ. Many of us will know that. He dies for the sins of his diverse people. He rises and ascends to the Father's right hand over all people. He sends his disciples with the news to the nations. And the gospel message spreads like wildfire from Jerusalem to to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And the message about Jesus goes with them. The cross was what was needed for the blessing to the nations to happen. For all our sin and rebellion and wrongdoing. For wanting to make a name for ourselves, for wanting to be like God, for wanting to be in his place. The cross is the answer, but just to narrow it down, think about this through the lens of what we're thinking about this morning in this series. Have a listen to this from one writer. Just as sin tends to corrupt every good gift of the creator, so ethnicity is compromised by human rebellion and becomes other than he intended. See what he's saying? One of the categories for which Jesus needed to die, in terms of our sin, that we need to be forgiven for is racism, xenophobia, prejudice, discrimination classifying them as other, whoever they might be. Which then follows, and he continues, the gospel addresses every area of human and cosmic dislocation resulting from sin. 
the vertical dimension of reconciliation with God is necessarily accomplished, sorry, accompanied by the horizontal restoration of human community in the church. All that divides humanity is transcended through this radical inclusion in Christ. What's he saying? He's saying we are reunited together because we're reunited to Christ. And this is seen brilliantly at, at Pentecost. Remember Pentecost? Pentecost is the answer to Babel. When God sends his spirit upon his brand new church at the start of Acts, they speak in different languages. Do you see God confuse the tongues at Babel to scatter the people? God multiplies the tongues at Pentecost to unite his people. Which means the gospel is for all the world. But then communicating this gospel around the world to all the world is not simple. Have a think about how Paul does it. As he takes his message of Jesus and he works hard to conform and to adapt to the cultures of his hearers. Let me read it for you. I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like, not, like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. How does Paul reach a diverse community of people? He becomes like them. He puts aside secondary cultural differences or preferences that the primary gospel message might be heard. And when the gospel takes root and he plants these little new churches... They're very different. They're very contextualized. They don't just look the same. But they match the area that he's planting into. And that's hard. Much of the New Testament is taken up with Paul writing to churches where there are problems with this kind of thing, whether it be ethnicities or backgrounds, thinking Ephesians or Romans, where there are different economic strata, thinking of James, you've got rich and poor, not treating each other well. There's something fundamental and fleshly in us to struggle with people who are not like us, the kind of people we don't want to sit by at church. But again and again and again, Paul writes to them and says, love each other, forgive each other, be unified, show what Jesus has done as he's reconciled you by forgiving. Your vertical reconciliation with God results in horizontal reconciliation with them, whoever they might be. And then as we started our service, it all ends up with this glimpse of a diverse eternity singing praise to Jesus, because his blood is for all. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, 
nation, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing there around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. A diverse people from every nation, tribe, people and language and yet united around the throne of the Lamb, wearing white robes and singing with a loud voice. So that's something of a sweep, very brief, probably raising more questions now for you. But the thing to just begin to think through is what does this mean for us now? What does this mean for us now? There'll be some good opportunity this week if you're in home groups to wrestle through and to pray through and think through some of these things. I wanted to read you from an article that I found quite helpful in this. Um, And they said, essentially, there are only two destinations for churches, really. One is exemplified by Babel and one is exemplified by Pentecost. That is, Babel, in part, was the first human attempt at cultural uniformity, hanging out with people like me. He says their aspiration was simply to gather together a homogeneous community to make their name great on the earth. Conversely, Pentecost is God's plan at kingdom unity through diversity, hanging out with people unlike me because God has been gracious to us all. Pentecost is not a city shaped by human hands to house a few, but the beginnings of a cosmic kingdom built to welcome people from every culture. The way a church travels towards Pentecost is by asking, how can we glorify Jesus by expanding his kingdom? He finishes, the desire, this desire leads to the true gospel that calls me to love my neighbours who are unlike me and welcome them into Christ's church. So there'll be all kinds of questions for us over the next few weeks. How can we glorify Jesus by expanding his kingdom? How can we better be a church that, as our vision statement says, reaches the peoples of East Oxford in all its increasing diversity, Oxford and the world? How can we be an eternal blessing to this extraordinary and diverse and changing local area how can we be a blessing how can you be a blessing in your world with the people around you whom the lord has put around you people who might not be like you whom you kind of just don't really engage with as i do how can we better relate to those who are not like us how do we struggle with those people who are not like us who are the people we avoid and steer clear of What would it mean to be a church that was careful and considerate in the way that we did church, that we might be more fruitful as we hold out the message of life? How can we be more of a Pentecost church and less of a Babel church? How sensitive are we in our church currently to those for whom English is not their first language or for whom England was not their birthplace or who don't think quite the same as everybody else thinks? How can we better reflect the area into which the Lord has put us? What does this mean for each of us as individuals and us as a community, as a church? Wouldn't you love to be 
more of that kind of a church. To be more that kind of a Christian, the kind of place that actually loves our neighbours as we were called to. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, forgive us. Forgive us, please, where we can have blind spots when it comes to your love for people. Forgive us, please, for how easily we can simply stick with those people who are like us or for whom we find it easy to get on with. Thank you for something of the diversity we have in this church community, but we long to better reach diverse East Oxford. Help us please to see how we can love our neighbour well. How we can reach out to those whom you've put in our midst. (coughs) And how we can celebrate the diverse cultures among us. Well, we look forward to that time when we shall see you face to face. There will be that true and perfect unity and diversity. Thank you that you didn't just create in in black and white or grey, but all kinds of eclectic and exciting and glorious creations. I thank you for Christ. Thank you that he, he died for his people. And thank you that his people are a diverse people. In his precious name we pray. Amen.